Welcome to another episode of Healing Through Love. Each week, we share ideas, experiences, and resources to increase the awareness of domestic and family violence and to empower survivors to grow and thrive. We talk with experts who share their advice or with people who have experienced abuse, no matter where they are on their journey. This is all about healing through love. And now, here are your hosts, Charlene Lynch and Rose Davidson. Jorgensen in episode 66 shares with us how we can find healing and hope through adversity. That's my goal is to um, share my my story to give others hope in their own journey to see that there's um, a, a path to healing no matter what happens in life. And so that it, that's my whole um goal in life at this point is to help as many peace people as I possibly can by sharing my story. So I'm, I'm open to everything. Yeah. And just to preface it, you know, it's, uh, I grew up in a home with domestic violence. And so I know that this, this audience is, is very familiar with all the ins and outs that, um, are, are associated with that. And so my dad was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alcoholic. And um, the uh, the pinnacle event um, happened in 1985 when I was 15 years old. The Healing Through Love podcast with Charlene Lynch and Rose Davidson. The Healing Through Love podcast with host Charlene Lynch and Rose Davidson would love to acknowledge Global Glamping Charities Incorporated for generously supporting this podcast. Global Glamping Charities, solving homelessness in all of its forms. Reach out to them at globalglamping.org. Hello and welcome to the Healing Through Love podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Lynch from charlenelynch.com. Healing Through Love is here to help victims and survivors of domestic and family violence wherever they are on their healing journey and help them live a more fulfilling and meaningful life. We interview experts and survivors who share their personal stories and offer advice for those who've experienced abuse, as I say, no matter where they are on their journey to healing. As well as the Healing Through Love podcast, we hold annual Pamper Days here in South Australia in Adelaide. For survivors of domestic and family violence, local businesses come together and pay it forward. They put their services on hold for a day and hold the space. Think day spa on steroids. It's beautiful to behold and it's amazing to witness this level of healing. We run these locally in South Australia and just as of this year, we've launched them globally and we have these pamper days in a vicinity near you. So if you would like to put your hand up and either be a participant or to reach out and actually be an exhibitor, uh, or even an organizer, please reach out to Healing Through Love. We would love to be in the proximity of other women who really want to make a difference and pay it forward. Every week we interview amazing guests, and this week is no difference. We have an amazing guest with us here today, Shelley Edward Jorgensen. She is the author of an amazing book. This is the edge of the seat gripping thriller, and it's true. It's true. 
We're going to dive in deep to how it took her eight years, nine years even, to create this masterpiece with a learning disability to say as well. I'm looking forward to diving in deep for the next 30 minutes to have this conversation. Hello, Shelley. How are you? Great. How are you, Charlene? I'm magnificent. It's been a privilege and a blessing just to have a private conversation with you before we press record today. And I'm looking forward to sharing your golden gems with our audience. Wow, what a journey. It is the edge of a seat thriller. Are you open to sharing that story with us so our listeners can learn? Absolutely. That's that's my goal is to um, share my my story to give others hope in their own journey to see that there's um, a, a path to healing no matter what happens in life. And so that it, that's my whole um, goal in life at this point is to help as many peace people as I possibly can by sharing my story. So I'm, I'm open to everything. I love it. So, you know, uh, there's a pinnacle of this story that is the crux when the, 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 you know, there's drama before and drama afterwards, but can you take us back to the big event? Yeah. And just to preface it, you know, it's, uh, I grew up in a home with domestic violence. And so I know that this, this audience is, is very familiar with all the ins and outs that, um, are, are associated with that. And so my dad was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alcoholic. And, um, the, uh, the pinnacle event, um, happened in 1985 when I was 15 years old my parents had been married just one year shy of 25 years. So, you know, they were married 10 years before I even came along. And I only have one older sister who's two years older than me. So the abuse started from the beginning. But back then, things were different when you're in domestic violence. And it's still hard now, but it was even, you know, more confining then. And so my dad would get violent when he drank. He was a, like I said, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alcoholic. And when I was 15, he ended up murdering my mother and burning our house down. And then it got worse for my sister and I. Um, <clears throat> and so um, I, there, there's lots to the story and I can, I can, I can talk about a lot of different things, but you know, when you when you are a child that grows up into domestic violence, it's it's different than being the adult that's in d- domestic violence, because even as an adult, you feel powerless over your situation. But as a child, you don't even know what's different. And, you know, you're 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 trained from the very beginning to not speak. You lose your voice and you know, a lot of people when, you know, when they get trapped into domestic violence as an adult, um, they lose their voice too. But uh, most people have at least something they can go back to and say, this is when I had a voice. Well, children that are in this, they never had the voice. And, and so, um, and then, and the other thing is, is that you internalize things differently um, and your kids do know what's going on. I talk about um, a story in the book when I was four that I knew um, I, 
that was when that was when it clicked in my head that mom was lying about how she got the black eye. And if she's lying, I when I and I I know who did it. And if she's lying, she must be afraid. And if she's afraid, I'm afraid. And and so um so there's a there's a lot there's a lot that goes on in the dynamic and I know every situation is different and 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 I guess I'm going to call this a disease. I've never really referred to it as a disease, but this is a this is generational trauma that just manifests itself and um and and it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're in between it doesn't matter who you are, anybody and everybody is affected by this. That's what I know at this point. There is so much to unpack in that first five minutes. Thanks very much, Shelley. So um, I've got a question. Uh, so I'm a recovered alcoholic and I get this Jekyll and Hyde, but was he diagnosed with bipolar or anything else or is it just purely called alcohol? Well, I mean, again, that's a big, big story. You know, um, a lot of people talk about how I was able to forgive my dad because I was, I did, I have. And one of that is one of that, um, ha what happened for me was to be able to step back and say, look, we're all born with our own strengths and weaknesses. We're all born um, uh, prepared in a different way to handle um, the adversity that arises in our own lives. And um, I believe that everybody, no matter who they are, they're doing the best that they can. Even if that best is horrible, they're doing the best that they can. And so I started looking at my own family history. Now, my dad, he was a Korean War vet, PTSD. He, um, he also was gay, but he's married. It's he was born in 1931. You're not gay in 1931. Uh, you know what I mean? You, you, you're not allowed to be that. Um, his father was also an abusive alcoholic. Well, if I look at my my grandfather's history, he his mother died in childbirth when he was three years old, and his father died when he was five. So he became an orphan. And he also was a World War I veteran and a Detroit police officer. PTSD, alcoholism, violence, all of it. So I, I came to the conclusion that I don't know where the accountability begins in my family lineage of this generational trauma that continues to get passed down. So it is not up to me to to judge who's responsible for what because I don't have enough information to do that. God does, I don't. And and so I have to give them enough grace for themselves and let them be accountable and responsible um and um and deal with it however they're going to have to deal with it in in when the time comes. And the and the, I also learned that forgiveness isn't about them; it's about me. So, I, I was I spent twenty years holding on to that 
hurt and pain and anger and, and all of that. And it was killing me. And, um, because I couldn't forgive, it didn't matter to my dad if I forgave him or didn't forgive him had no effect on him. He was dead by the, by the time I forgave him anyway. And, um, but the, but it made a world of difference for me because I didn't let that negative, all that rage, all of that pent up, um, stuff eat me like a cancer. Now, of course I had to have trauma therapy and the right trauma therapy at that to get past it. But, but so that's kind of, that's kind of the story and how I see that, you know, no one just picks up a bottle and becomes an alcoholic. There's always something that, that sets the stage for that because it's no one's choice. It's nobody's choice. Uh, yes, and <laughs> that's a different conversation. So, wow. Okay, so let's have a dive into forgiveness because, you know, it is a topic of conversation regularly for for us living our lives at, at this point in time of our evolution, really, and uh, forgiveness of others and forgiveness ourselves. And my central message is a message of forgiveness. So I'm asked every week, how do you forgive and so I'm asking you, how do you forgive? Well, and and that's how I did it. I I I I took an honest, I took my emotion, my my anger, I took my hurt, and I put that aside and I tried to see things from somebody else's point of view. If 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 there's been any gift in my life, which there's been many gifts in my life from going through such trauma, because the murder of my mother is the tip of the iceberg of what I've experienced. Um, I was molested, sexually assaulted and raped twice the same year my mother was murdered before and after by different people. So, I mean, the list of trauma that I've had to overcome is extensive. And so, um, so I've, the, the blessing in that is that I've been able to develop a lot of empathy. So my, my first, my first instinct now is to try to see things from somebody else's point of view. It doesn't mean I have to agree with their point of view, but I, I, I try to understand it from their point of view accepting the fact that with the belief that I do believe that everybody, even the most wicked people are still doing their best. And, um, and they're, they're fighting their own demons. And, um, and so that was the birthplace of my forgiveness was to be able to, to, to look at my dad and recognize, you know, I'm not perfect. So why am I expecting him to be perfect? Now, did everything he did, was that horrendous? Absolutely was horrendous. And, um, but again, what were his strengths and weaknesses? What adversity did he face? What traumas were in his life that were unresolved? You know, where does the accountability begin? Because it's 
you know, it's like the snowball effect of, of trauma. If we look around us, we see nothing but uh, millions and millions, probably billions of people struggling with generational trauma. And, and, and so we have to have the same sort of grace for other people that we want for ourselves mm. in our own, in our own weakness. Mm. So that's how I looked at it. Mm. Yes, I love it. I often refer to it. Well, how do you let go of a hot potato? You just let go. Uh, when I went through the process of forgiving my son for his choice of taking his own life, then that was instant and I received instant healing. So I was healing at the speed of love. Yes, and uh, with mother guilt and everything that I brought to the table with my complex thought processes and my uh, addictions is that it took me a lot longer to forgive myself for creating an environment that I felt was conducive to his decision. So, so it's interesting how we can forgive for, for one, but we have a different rule for ourselves and uh, we need to bring that level of compassion to everyone, <laughs> including ourselves. And uh, sometimes we can begin our healing process by be healing ourselves first, by forgiving ourselves first, and then moving on to, to heal the rest of the stories. I love what you talk about, about generational trauma is something that I talk about from stage. And it really is very, very powerful, these individual stories of this generational power, uh, generational uh, challenges and that when we break them we break them for the future generations and some people believe depending on you know what your religious beliefs are that you're also healing the trauma 700 years in the past so so it's fascinating that we have the power to break these chains to break these patterns and uh, and hold a new frequency for the next generation i love that i love that so you've got children yourself uh, shelly I have I have stepchildren, so I uh, I didn't get married until I was uh, forty one. Ah. So that's a whole nother that was a whole nother trauma for me. I don't even talk about that in the book because I just had too much to to cover. But um, but yeah, I I had to wait to find Mister Wright, but I wasn't going to settle, and I didn't. <laughs> I hear you. I'm only just recently married in March this year. And uh, it took, I'm 56, so I waited till I was 56 to get married. So I, I get it. And uh, I had to wait for my Prince Charming, who interestingly enough, we dated when I was 21, but I was not ready to be loved like that. And uh, yeah, we were 35 years apart until I was ready to be loved at that capacity. So I get it. I get it. I get it. Yep. Kindred souls, I feel, Shelley. So wow. Yes. Beautiful that you've come from, well, beautiful is not the word. It, it's fascinating how you've come from this environment where there's been, you know, anyone else would be still at a lower frequency and, and not in a position to bring that level of forgiveness and this level of light and higher frequency to share with other people. And the work that you're doing to help burden, you know, re re release the burden for other people by having this beautiful book, an absolutely beautiful book, and allowing people to be part of that journey. And the pain that you went through, it took you more than nine years, is that right, to write the book? It did. I it was it it wasn't ready. The ending wasn't ready when I started. And so um, you know, I, I had to have a friend. I, I'm dyslexic engineer, so I write in bullet points, you know, and and um and so 
I was really good at giving the data about my story, but I got to a point where it was like, I don't need the data. You know, I don't need, you know, the, the timeline, the date, you know, October 14th, 1985, you know, six, six Oh six PM, the, the police, you know, or the fire trucks got called, you know, I don't need the data. I had all the data. What I needed was what was I thinking and what was I feeling? And so in addition to having to have a friend of mine help me ghostwrite, um, I had to go back to therapy. I I hadn't been in therapy for a decade. I had I had gone from praying to die every day to happy and whole after I found the right trauma therapy, which, you know, note this note to everybody online is there's not one size fits all in therapy. You have to find the right the right therapist and the right therapy. I did talk therapy on and off for 15 years and I was still praying to die every day. I hear and then I <laughs> yeah. And and then I found um some of these more holistic um out of the box um approaches that actually changed my life. And and so uh, I was doing EMDR um back in the early 2000s um now, you know, the U- US military VA hospital is using it for PTSD. Prince um, Harry talked about how he's used it. You know, for those who um, who aren't familiar with it or are looking to learn a little bit more about it, the founder of it um, wrote a book called Getting Past Your Past. And she teaches you about, about what it is and some techniques if you're suffering from anxiety or whatever um, to help um, some some to do some of the techniques on yourself because you know therapy is expensive <laughs> and not everybody has the means and um and so i was still too numb because my defense mechanism my coping mechanism to deal with this mountain of trauma that i've ex- um you know because after the fire i had to live with my dad for two and a half years i was a teenager then they put me on the stand to be the star witness for the prosecution that I didn't know about until two days before. And I had to go home with him. So, I mean, it's the, the story is mind blowing, really, when when you really get into everything that happened. But um, so I, I was so numb, I couldn't I couldn't even get in touch with my feelings. And so I went back to therapy literally brought my computer and my therapist that I had worked with, you know, 10 years previous to get me through, you know, bet to where I was happy and whole. She's, you know, helping me through this and, and, and typing up. And so, and, and my friend had, um, husband got transferred to Thailand for his job for three years. And so there's a lot of reasons why it took nine years, but and just the process to publish is intense. So, um, and none, neither one of us knew what we were doing, but um, I persevered because I needed to do this. 
Very cathartic, very cathartic. So this book is called Beautiful Ashes, A True Story of Betrayal, and it's the intimate story. It really is the edge of the seat thriller, and uh, unfortunately it's true. And uh, in reading this book, you'll find tools and techniques to help you lean in and, and make a difference and to have that level of awareness so that you can make different choices. Now, these books are available on Amazon worldwide, and um, and also you can connect with uh, Shelley on our social media. So we're going to have the links for her social media in the show notes and in the show description as well. And um, before the before the show, before we press record, we were having a beautiful conversation in and around book club. So can you maybe explain about book club and how you can help others in their book club? That I, I find it fascinating. Can you share that story, Shelley? Yeah, I I got invited to a book club to for um for my book to be featured in um in Patricia McLean's book club surrendered surrounded around domestic violence and and so they gave me the idea that I should you know put myself out there and and make myself available that as the author I will join your book club to discuss my book and I've done at least ten of them at this point and. People love it because, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack in this book. It's it's like 400 pages long and, um, you know, there's 12 hours if you get it on Audible and, or almost 12 hours. And so everyone walks away with questions and and um, and then in the book clubs, I'll zoom in if if you're in Australia, either though I would like to come to Australia again. But <laughs> but I'll zoom in and we just have a book club. We have a chat. You guys get to ask me any questions you had or want. And um, and just just it's free form. So that's that's what I do with with the book clubs. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, um, so. So these are people who get together and read books and then they will want to actively go and speak to the author. Is that right? Yeah. And, and most of the time they don't have access to the author. Book clubs usually are just, oh, you know, um, a, a group of people getting together that read the same book. It could be in Harry Potter. And then they get together and they talk about, well, this was my favorite character. Or, I like the writing about this. Whatever they talk about in their book clubs, I don't know, because I'm not even in a book club. <laughs> so, sister in dyslexia, neither am I. And I, for me, it would be like a form of torture. So yeah. um, it would be like homework times a thousand. So I'm really curious. You've been, you've now done 10 of these and, you know, they would be, there would be some questions that you would notice are asked several times. Can, are you okay to just tell us what some of those questions are? just as as a I'm not going to go to a book club so I really love to know <laughs> yeah 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 well the if you listen to it on audible then you'll come up with the same questions like for example the um the um the fact that I I had to testify so let me kind of back it up the moment I was at basketball practice and my sister was at basketball practice and our neighbor arrived at practice to pick us up to tell us there was a fire at our house. Okay. Now there was an ensuing event earlier that day. And as a child that grows up in domestic violence, you're aware of what those risk factors are. So what had happened was my sister 
had gotten, she had a class the first two hours of the day at a different high school in the same city. On the way home or on the way back to our school, her and two girls stopped at a, a we call them party stores. It could be like a 7-Eleven. Okay. Um, and they, um, they shoplifted beer. They were underage. They weren't going to be able to buy it. So they shoplifted beer. They got arrested. Well, my dad, my mom was at work and my dad was at home because he was doing shift work because he worked, um, he worked for Ford and in the CAD systems at that time were 24 hours. So he had to pick her up from, from jail. He made this deal with my sister that he wasn't going to say anything to my mom until they sat down together and could discuss it because he had felt like the police were threatening enough. They were threatening to prosecute as adults because they were 17, blah, 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 blah. So I come home from school on the bus because my practice was after my sister. She was on varsity. I was on junior varsity because she was a senior and I was a sophomore. So I get home and here's my dad hammered in his bathrobe in the kitchen when he should have been getting ready to leave for work, drunk, um, still drinking his Manhattan, which was his drink of choice. Okay. So he's crying to me on that's an unfamiliar emotion and asking me where he went wrong as a parent. I go hide upstairs waiting for my ride. That's going to come. I call my mother at work. I talked to her about the carpooling situation for basketball. And um, she asks if my dad's home. I say, yes. She gets on the phone with him. I kicking myself for not listening but I hung up the handset and I ran down and I eavesdrop in the hallway so I could at least hear my dad's side of the conversation. So I hear my dad telling my mom what he promised my sister he wasn't going to tell. But the weird part was he was getting mad that she was getting mad. Well, what mother isn't going to be pissed off that their 17-year-old kid was shoplifting beer? Every mother on the planet is going to be mad about that. <laughs> and so... um but he, I think, um, because he was drunk, was being irrational about it. So I, my antennas were up. I knew there was a pending problem. Well, my sister had my grandmother's car. That's why this even, even happened, because that wasn't a normal event either. And um, she should have come home from her practice as soon as hers ended, and that's when mine started. Well... I hung up the phone with my, or my mom hung up the phone and she must have headed right home from work because next thing you know, I hear the garage door open. So I ran down the stairs to create a distraction because now my dad's still drunk and we live in a very affluent neighborhood. Okay. So he's sitting in the built-in uh, desk in the kitchen, still drunk. I make up this excuse when my mother comes in the door that I need help with geometry. And she's like, well, you know, if I knew you were going to still be home, I would have taken you to practice because my ride was late. So I'm thinking, okay, all right, Lisa, you're going to be home any minute. My ride is late. Let me see. Let me diffuse this situation, make sure a fight doesn't ensue and they don't talk to each other. So a few, you know, a few minutes later, uh, the horn honks out front. My ride's there. 
I give my mom a, a, a kiss and I say, I love you. And I run out the door. Well, I get up to the school and there sits my sister in the gym. So she didn't come home. And then the next thing you know, the neighbor's there saying your house is on fire. So now we're on the way home from um, from the high school. And um, this stupid song of the 80s was the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. Have you guys heard that song? That's a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So she, my sister's literally singing this song when I'm asking the question, you know, cause the neighbor's saying, Oh, your dad's every, the, the, the fire department's on the scene. You're everyone's okay. Your dad's at our house, blah, blah, blah. So this dumb song is on my sister's singing it. And I asked the question, well, where's my mom? And and uh, Mrs. Idell looks in her rear view mirror and says, oh, she wasn't home from work yet. And so I hit Lisa in the leg and I look at her, I say, shut up. Mom was home when I left. And at that moment, both of us knew, we both knew, we didn't have to speak it. We both knew that my dad, that my mom was dead and that my dad did this. Okay. So that's, October 14th, 1985. In that moment, I knew. He didn't even get arrested until February of 86. And his trial didn't start until February of 88. All of that time, we lived, had we, we were, well, most of the time we lived with them. Both of us took ourselves out of the mix the last few little bit, last eight months. But but we were living with him. And, but the thing was, here was the other thing that was the problem is the next morning we're at the police station because the night there was, I literally watched my house on the 11 o'clock news on fire and then talking about it being, they already knew it was arson. And so um, the next morning I'm at the police station being questioned and my dad's lawyer why, why does an innocent man have a, a criminal defense lawyer sitting in the room with the only child that was home? Okay, so the, his lawyer is in the room with me and the police are asking me questions. Now, I'm trained. I'm a domestic violent child. I'm trained to, to keep the secret. I'm trained to not talk about this. He's not asking me the right questions. He's asking me you know, benign questions. I answered every question, but he didn't ask me any right question. So he, um, that, and plus my dad's lawyers glaring over the shoulder and I have to go home with my father. So I know this. And I haven't uttered a word of any one of these abusive outbursts to anybody in my entire life. So I'm certainly not going to freely give that up. And so so the the interview was just lame. Well, then they started getting letters over time from my grandmother, and I don't know who else. My my grandmother, my aunt, some of my mom's friends. So they knew that domestic violence was part of the equation. They didn't once come back and interview my sister and I. So now for two and a half years, I'm thinking they haven't talked to me about this. I'm not going to have to um, testify. And I'm trying to believe my dad's stupid story because I don't want the truth to be the truth because this is my father. I've just lost everything. 
you know, he's not all evil. I do love him because it's my father. And so, um, I, I moved myself to California with my best friend's family at the time. And so he, my dad calls me like on a Tuesday and says, Shelly, you need to come home and you have to, you've been subpoenaed. You got to testify in court on Monday. I'm like, what? This is two and a half years later. No one's talked to me. And by the way, CPS, which is child, child protective services did nothing for us. Didn't even speak to us ever. Even though my dad went to prison and I was still a minor, but that's a whole nother part of the story. So, and everyone always asks about that. So, um, so I, he gives me this address. This is back in the days before GPS or Google. (laughs) He gives me this address says, yeah, you have to go um, talk to this lawyer to get prepped for court on Monday. Okay. I take it. I go to, I find the address. I go to this lawyer's office. I start talking to this lady, have no idea who she is. And she starts showing me pictures and asking, asking me, because I was the last one in the house. There's this huge stain. Like, I mean, I, I don't have enough width in this frame to show you my hands, but it was like three feet in diameter stain that obviously was blood on the rug in the living room that I had just been in before I left. And she says to me, she says, did you, was this stain on the rug um, when you left? I said, no. She's like, well, would you have seen it if it was? I'm like, absolutely. And I show her how I just walk, I walk through this area. Plus we had a, a vaulted ceiling with the circular staircase that overlooked the entire room that I came through and it was tan carpet. She said, well, the night of the fire, uh, um, and oh, by the way, I was reading about my life in the Detroit newspapers because no one was telling me anything because I was a child. So that's how I was piecing things together. But I was living in denial the whole time because I lived with my father and trying to prevent him from killing my sister. But that's a whole nother part of the story too. So so she goes, uh, she goes well, the night of the fire, they took these pictures. And um, then when they went back to take a sample of this um, stain in the carpet, the whole carpet was missing. They didn't cr- secure the crime scene. <laughs> and the, we're talking a tw- probably a 20 foot by 25 foot room with furniture. This, <laughs> so It just even gets more fascinating, listeners, doesn't it? And this is only a tiny, tiny section of the book. And I swear, Shelley and I could talk till breakfast. <laughs> this is such a fascinating story. And I will be listening to it on audio. <laughs> uh, it is absolutely fantastic. And I, I'd really love to have you come back as a guest down the track and, and see what you're doing and, and share more of this amazing story. It's been, we have been speaking for more than 40 minutes. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Oh, wow. I know. I love it. I love it. And, uh, and, you know, just in closing, make sure that you reach out and connect on social media. She regularly puts information to help inspire you and stand in your own power so that you can make the decisions to help you move forward. Remember the book called, it's, if you can get it through Amazon if you're in Australia, Beautiful Ashes, A True Story of Betrayal. And you look, if you are in a book club, please reach out and have Shelley come and be that special guest speaker. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. And in saying goodbye, Shelley, are there some last words you'd like our listeners to hear? Just don't give up. There is a path to healing. 
no matter what you've been through, you're not alone in this journey. Reach out to the people who are your people and we will be there for you. I love it. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Shelley. That's a goodbye from Healing Through Love and Shelley. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Healing Through Love. You can get further resources, see the show notes, or simply reach out to us via our website at htlaustralia.org. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to your company next time on the Healing Through Love podcast. Thank you.